0: This is a content warning. This episode contains references to disease, famine, violence, torture and executions. Teachers, guardians, parents and caregivers should listen to every part of this episode first and then make their own judgement call about whether this content is suitable for younger or more sensitive audiences. Case S01 E06, the Pendle Witch Trials. It is the mid-1400s. We are in continental Europe. The dominant religion across many of the countries here is Roman Catholic, under the auspices of Pope Paul II. At this time, and in this part of the world, the Church has extensive power, and this reaches into every area of a person's life. But despite its apparent security and ubiquity, the church perceives a threat. In 1468, Pope Paul II issues a decree. In this decree, he declares witchcraft and sorcery to be a crimen exceptum, a crime so extreme that normal judicial processes simply cannot begin to apply. It is now a bleak time to be accused of witchcraft. The new decree removes the few limitations that existed regarding the use of cruelty and physical torture against accused witches. Soon, handbooks are circulating in ecclesiastical and civil courts across Europe. These guides instruct that even mere suspicions of witchcraft are tantamount to proof. Why? Because God never allows the persecution of innocents. This logic sets up an almost unfalsifiable trap. After all, if God never allows the persecution of innocents, then anyone who is successfully persecuted cannot be innocent. Otherwise, God would have intervened. This was also an age where our lives were fundamentally dependent upon the natural world, and that world could be a vortex of inexplicable terror. 150 years earlier, as the population of Europe boomed, The demand for crops and food became such that only perfect weather conditions could yield harvests plentiful enough to feed everyone. In 1315, however, the weather turned wet, and though summer arrived, it was cold. This led to a massive crop failure, and the seed grain began to rot in the fields before it could even take root. At first, people turned to their food stores and the natural berries and providence of the surrounding countryside, but this was barely enough to sustain them into the next year. The seasons turned, and the starving population did not have the strength to work the lands to produce a better harvest. Meanwhile, the cold, wet weather continued. With no food reserves left, the famine now bit deep. People began to die in their millions, many starving despite their best efforts, some choosing to starve so that their meagre portion could go to loved ones in a desperate effort to save them. This famine continued for seven long years until finally, in 1322, the continent began to crawl back towards the light of plenty. The peace and relative prosperity would not be long-lived. 25 years later, within living memory of many of those who had survived the famine, the scourge of the Black Death burned across Eurasia, killing anywhere between 75 and 200 million People became ill with acute fevers, they erupted in weeping boils, they broke out in clusters of black spots all over their skin, some would struggle to breathe, others would find the tips of their extremities blackening and shriveling as the flesh died back off the bone, and still others would begin vomiting blood. The disease was so savage it could kill within as little as 48 hours. For others, the agony would prolong itself over eight long days. The death toll was so vast that it would take 200 years for the population to recover to pre-plague levels. And in this era, our medical and scientific ignorance was profound. Notions that we now take for granted, the very existence of germs, how diseases spread, the impact of hygiene and sanitation on mortality rates, these were all discoveries yet to be made, some of them hundreds of years into the future. But famine and plague, which could scorch across the continents for decades, these were not the only torments. The ground might suddenly shake, split. It might open up into gigantic water-filled holes that swallowed fields and cows and trees and homesteads. Endless rain might suddenly pour down swelling rivers into floods that triggered mudslides that buried entire villages in the dead of night. Hurricanes could tear up crops and rip down homes. One year, all the harvests might fail. The next, all the cows might grow thin and die. The year after that, a blazing drought might sear the earth to cracked, dry dust. and then. In the very midst of this barren furnace on, say, the 29th of July, 1478, ten years after the Pope's public decree, at one minute past one precisely, in the blazing heat of a bright summer afternoon, the sun over Europe might suddenly black out, smothered as if by the hand of God or the devil himself. For five agonising minutes the sweltering high noon sun was plunged into chilly, silent alien darkness to you or me an eclipse and still a little creepy but to the people then this must have seemed like the end of times in our pressing need to make sense to find reason to extract order to knit together some kind of logic even just to blame someone in an otherwise chaotic universe we began to make connections between one event and another that did not actually exist. You might recognise this as the basis of the concept of superstition, which is in turn productive of a whole host of bizarre behaviours. So we have people who have all kinds of rhymes and activities around the appearance of magpies. Some people believe that if you mention the devil, you have to throw salt over your shoulder to prevent this from summoning him. We have so many superstitions in all of our cultures around the world. Superstitions are as numerous as the stars in the sky, and they are in fact fascinating because they're as revealing of the human psyche as many other cultural artefacts like art and literature and music. Some argued, with great success, that these horrors that we were subjected to again and again were, of course, the wrath of God. We had sinned and this was our punishment. But this doesn't paint us in such a good light. Our pious devotions and our frantic efforts to appease this enraged deity seem to meet with yet more disasters and diseases. So, could there be other explanations that might absolve us of at least some responsibility? After all, there wasn't only God in the equation. There was also the devil, and one could never be sure whether this latest disaster was God's wrath, or the trickery and machinations of the infernal serpent himself. And if it was the devil, then how could he best act upon our world? Well, through us, of course. In Satan's constant battle to conquer and subjugate humankind, he would prey upon the weak, the petty, the ungodly. To them he would make the enticing offer of a pact. The Prince of Darkness would confer upon them unnatural powers to control the world about them using sorcery. Or in other words, he would turn them into witches, and all they must give him in return was their eternal soul. At this time, being accused of witchcraft was already a precarious position to find oneself in, but after Pope Paul II's decree, things got very much worse. A person who insisted upon their innocence would almost certainly face torture or execution, often by being burnt alive. Remember, the belief was that God would prevent the innocent from being harmed, so if you were able to immolate somebody, then clearly they were guilty. Across Europe, disasters and diseases in turn fueled a toxic paranoia of suspicion and superstition. As a result, approximately 40,000 people were executed as witches from the beginning of the 1400s through to the middle of the 1700s. This is a horrifying number. It's a tragedy of unbelievable proportions. But mathematically, it is mercifully small. If we pretend that Europe was comprised of about 50 countries at that time, It will have been a different number, but it's actually difficult to reconcile the many conflicting records of geography at the time. But if we say it's 50, and if we divide the 40,000 victims over those 350 years, and again over those 50 countries, we actually find that this was more like an average of three executions per year per country. Three too many, absolutely. But this was not the sort of genocide that it has sometimes been portrayed as in more dramatic retellings. That said, The trials and executions were also not carried out in metronomic, paced, carefully choreographed manner either. In practice, there would be no executions for decades, a factor almost certainly affected by the prevailing conditions of the natural world at any given moment. If there were fair harvests and if there were few diseases, this would likely have spelled relative tranquility and harmony. But then, in the wake of unexplained deaths or sudden aberrations to the ordinary patterns of life, a failed harvest, outbreak of disease, the spectre of witchcraft would rise again in the minds of the poor and the uneducated. With it would come the paranoia, the finger-pointing, inquisitions, trials, counter-accusations, tortures, and then the executions, sometimes in their dozens. Once the witches were dead, perhaps hoping that God or Satan or indeed both were satisfied with the consequences, the shadow of witchcraft would gradually fade away again. Until the next time. Welcome to Enclair, an archive of forensic linguistics, literary detection and language mysteries. You can find case notes about this episode, including credits, acknowledgements and links to further reading, at the blog. The web address is given at the end of this episode. Witchcraft trials were not carried out in the same way across the many countries and sovereignties that made up this part of the world at this time. For instance, by contrast with the rest of Europe, the tiny isolated lands of Great Britain, and particularly of England, were not as uniformly Catholic. There was never any kind of inquisition in the country, and with the softening aspect of distance and seas between England and the Vatican, the influence of Rome and its Catholic Church was not felt quite so strongly here as elsewhere. Instead, we can argue that it was the beginning of Queen Elizabeth I's reign that marked a significant moment in the judicial persecution of witches in England. On paper, the first secular law relating to witchcraft appeared 16 years before Elizabeth took the throne. It was enacted in 1542 under the auspices of Henry VIII, but it didn't last long. Six years later, in 1547, King Edward VI repealed it. When Elizabeth became queen in 1558, however, the idea of battling dark, supernatural forces with earthly judicial measures came back to the fore. A bill was drafted and eventually passed in 1563. This bill outlined severe penalties for witchcraft, enchantment, charm, or sorcery. It included the following proscribed, that is forbidden, behaviors. A. Conjuring or invoking evil spirits for any purpose. B. Witchcraft, enchantment, charm, or sorcery, including 1. Causing death by witchcraft. 2. Using witchcraft to cause damage to people, catalogue goods. 3. Looking for treasure, finding stolen property, or trying to provoke any person to unlawful love. The punishment for bewitching someone to death was execution. For a first offence of the others, it was prison and the pillory. Any subsequent offences led straight to prison or death. The pillory, in case you are not sure what this is, for those lucky enough to have never heard of it, is in essence stocks. It dates back to at least the 1100s, if not sooner. It's a frame, it's set up somewhere in the open, such as on the village green or on a hill, somewhere public, and it holds some unfortunate criminal or petty wrongdoer by the neck and the wrists, leaving them to the mercy of the public. Now, that doesn't sound too bad, but in practice, at best, someone might escape with humiliation. They might be scorned. They might have disgusting things thrown at them, but otherwise they may get away in good shape. Unfortunately, this was not always the case. Some people were treated brutally. Passers-by could throw rotting food, animal viscera, rocks, anything that came to hand. So injuries, really serious injuries, broken jaws, blindness, traumatic head injuries, broken bones, paralysis, death these were not uncommon outcomes. Some considered the pillory to be a grotesque public execution just by another name. From it, we derive the modern figurative use of the word to pillory someone, meaning to abuse or ridicule them usually with words. Throughout Elizabeth's reign, England was home to a series of notorious witch trials. One of the first occurred in Essex in 1566, eight years after she took power, and another similar trial took place in Chelmsford in 1579. Further witch-hunting outbreaks occurred in St. Oses in 1582 and again in Chelmsford in 1589. The geographically literative view, I am not amongst those, I had to look this up, will have noticed that these are all close to London. But the growing superstitions about witches were spreading. As Elizabeth's reign extended into multiple decades, there were more witch-hunts and more trials moving ever northward up the country, into places including Norfolk, Leicester, Nottingham, York and Northumberland although not all ended in executions. Finally, 40 years after the enactment of the Witchcraft Bill, Queen Elizabeth's reign was ended by her death. But the persecution of witches did not die with her. In fact, King James took the throne of England and Ireland on the very same day in March of 1603 that Queen Elizabeth died, but it was not long afterwards that the tyranny began to intensify. King James had ascended the Scottish throne 36 years earlier at the tender age of one, when his mother, Mary Queen of Scots, was forced to abdicate. As some of you will know, Mary fled to England hoping to place herself under the protection of her first cousin once removed, Queen Elizabeth. This ultimately turned out to be a bad plan for Mary, but since this is a case I'm saving for a future episode, for now we'll get back to Scotland and James VI. When Elizabeth died in 1603, through his lineage, James VI of Scotland, then also became King James I of England and Ireland. So for future reference, in case this has ever confused you, King James VI and I is just one person, and his odd title is this weird artefact of one monarch being the crowned head of multiple kingdoms. Anyway, whether because of Elizabeth's laws on the matter, or because of his own personal views, King James was very interested in the theology of witchcraft. He had a particular passion for continental European theories of satanic pacts, and he viewed witchcraft as heresy. This is unsurprising. Throughout the kingdoms, or now kingdom, of Scotland, England and Ireland, older religions like Celtic paganism survived in little pockets. Celtic paganism venerated the natural world and considered all living things to possess spirits with which one could commune. It was a polytheistic religion, so followers believed in many gods and goddesses. Groves, rocks, streams, mountains, any and all could be the home of a deity and so turned into a sacred shrine of worship. But not everything about this religion was quite so placid. Celtic druids, for instance, appear to have been pretty hot on human sacrifice. And local kings could find themselves ritually executed if a harvest did not go as planned. Likewise, there is plenty of evidence in several archaeological digs of headhunting by Celtic warriors. Anyway, that rather mixed bag of tranquility and terror aside, these little pockets posed a potential threat to the ruling elite. Despite Elizabeth's long and relatively stable rule, the hiccups with King James and with Mary Queen of Scots, the factions between the Protestants and the Catholics, meant that there were many latent social fault lines and tensions. And, rightly or wrongly, religion is an especially effective tool for the control at the level of the population. One can threaten all kinds of terrible damnations in the afterlife to gain some obedience, and of course no one ever comes back to contradict you. But alternative religions can erode that control, playing on those fault lines, driving wedges into cracks and triggering sudden violent uprisings. One way to deal with possible threats of anarchy and civil disobedience is to extinguish any competing religions, and a way to achieve this is to cast them as blasphemous, dirty, evil. Their worshippers were heathens, a word that, to this day, has pagan as a synonym, along with infidel, profane and barbarian. Even the word unchristian doesn't just mean someone who is not a Christian. It means someone who is unkind, immoral, corrupt, sinful. So it's interesting to note that the after effects of this grudge match against paganism still exists vividly in our language today. It was a simple step to go from associating disfavored religions with barbarity to reframing them as wicked, malevolent practices, in league with witchcraft. Back to King James, though. On the strength of his feeling, and based on his research, he wrote a treatise entitled Demonology, Demonology in form of a dialogue divided into three books by the high and mighty Prince, James and Co. Or, for short, throughout the rest of this episode, we're just going to call this Demonology. This was a philosophical dissertation, and it covered everything from necromancy and black magic to divination and demonology to werewolves and vampires. And although it was theological in Kant, it was really a political and arguably a legal work justifying the persecution of so-called witches via canonical law. So it was using statutory instruments, if you like, to carry out a theological perspective. In case some of the history in this episode has also suggested this to you, there are suspicions from various historians and literary experts that Shakespeare used demonology to inform his play Macbeth. So from it, he seems to have taken inspiration for the rituals and the incantations carried out by the three weird sisters, and even the Scottish themes seem to spring from James's heritage in his time as the King of Scotland. Demonology was printed in Edinburgh in 1597. So, this was six years before King James took the English and Irish throne. And perhaps unsurprisingly, James was the only monarch to publish a treatise on this topic. And his book was a clear reflection, as we've said, of the continental theology of witchcraft. So, witches, sorceries, necromancy were all described and they were framed as heretical that is, a rejection of God and a sin against the Holy Ghost. King James also stressed the notion of contracts made with the devil and the idea that the devil would typically appear to his would-be servants in the form of an animal, such as a dog or a cat or an ape, and this animal would then leave a mark on that servant's body to bind them to him. I do have to wonder, as an aside, how many people in that era would have even known what an ape looked like. But anyway, moving on. Why would people enter into such a pact with the devil? Why did he imagine people were down for this? Well, King James envisioned two motives that sort of faintly echo the classic seven deadly sins. He posited that revenge and greed were the motives. And why were women especially so quick to make these satanic pacts? Because, of course, they were the frailer sex, and thus, in James's own words, more likely to be entrapped in those gross snares of the devil. Demonology also documented an ongoing human belief, as old as water, that words can do things. Magical things. Dangerous magical things. Think of words like cursing, swearing, and blaspheming. In another episode, I'm going to look into the frankly mind boggling world of swearing and what we call dirty language. It is a bizarre vortex of our social neuroses about poverty, lack of education, poor hygiene, immorality, disease, magic, sex, class, age, masculinity, all kinds of things are tied up in this subject but right now, let's stick specifically with cursing. Verbs such as to wish harm or to wish evil and to curse were particularly common in witchcraft narratives of this period. To curse could just mean expressing a desire for something bad to happen, but in the case of witchcraft, it was seen as causing something bad to happen. Importantly, this meant that any curse or negative comment or even just muttering or mumbling in the presence of others had the potential to be post-factually reinterpreted as a witch's curse if some sort of misfortune later befell someone. Accusations of witchcraft were therefore based less on the actual specific words than on the context, plus any subsequent disasters, and, of course, on some hearer or witness interpreting cause and effect, or, if you like, ha, curse and defect. In other words, you might scream, die, at someone, But if they did not then suddenly drop dead, it's going to be difficult to prove that this was a curse. By contrast, you might suddenly remember something important and then mutter it to yourself under your breath, unaware that just across the street someone has just dropped dead. To the casual witness, who happened to see both you muttering and this person collapse, your badly timed mumbling could now be interpreted as a curse. So, curse and defect, cause and effect. This was not a time to exchange angry words with a neighbour who then suddenly fell gravely ill. Nor should one be seen close to wild animals, or familiars, just before the crops all withered. Nor was it in one's best interest to be seen mumbling at a herd of cows who then produced little milk. It was much too easy for paranoid onlookers to draw these fatal connections between actions and supposed consequences, to see evil forces at work, to point a finger, and to cry witch. King James lists what he considers to be the primary components of witch conjurations in demonology. Here are his words. There are four principal parts the persons of the conjurers, the action of the conjuration, the words and rites used to that effect, and the spirits that are conjured. Perhaps fortunately, perhaps not, James does not go on to describe the particular words or rites that he means. The ambiguity may have led to the incredibly broad interpretation thenceforth as to what constituted cursing. Instead, he only makes a general remark about long prayers and much muttering and murmuring. Nonetheless, in demonology, King James makes much of the distinction between natural and unnatural practices. Witchcraft was different from medicine, for example, by virtue of the fact that witches could heal with words alone. This was deemed an unnatural practice, whilst doctors, had to apply medicines to the injured body parts, what was seen as a more natural practice. Brace yourself for some more real, live demonology. His rudiments, I call first in general, all that which is called vulgarly the virtue of word, herb and stone, which is used by unlawful charms without natural causes. As likewise all kind of practiques, freights, or other like extraordinary actions which cannot abide the true touch of natural reason. I mean either by such kind of charms as commonly daft wives use for healing of forespoken goods, for preserving them from evil eyes, by knitting round trees, or the sundriest kind of heroes, to the hair or tails of the goods, by curing the worm, by stemming of blood, by healing of horse crooked, by turning of the riddle, or the doing of such like innumerable things by words, without applying anything meat to the part offended, as mediciners do. Unlearned men, being naturally curious and lacking the true knowledge of God, finds these practices to prove true, by the power of the devil for deceiving men, and not by any inherent virtue in these vain words and freights. In practice, when you really put these ideas under the microscope, it's difficult to see how something like this, which we might call a spell or an incantation, is actually all that different from prayer and activities that surround prayer, such as rosary beads and so forth. But demonology found ways to keep one form of summoning a supernatural force distinct from other kinds. Spells were supposedly without humility, whereas a prayer was a humble subjugation before God. Meanwhile, the distinction between natural and unnatural was of course derived from scripture. If biblical texts and religious tradition forbade it, then it was of course unnatural. But King James did not just write about witches as a general subject of social, moral and religious interest. He also had something to say on the judicial aspects, including how to carry out trials and prosecutions. He enumerated three key sources of what he called evidence that could be used to prove an accusation of witchcraft. First, witness testimony, even from children and from witches themselves, though when it came to the witches' testimony, this was to be treated with caution. After all, a witch is evil, and lying is small beans really compared to, say, cursing another person to death. But as you can imagine, this put the accused in an almost impossible position. You are accused of witchcraft, nobody believes your denials, what are you going to do? Number two, in the words of King James, the finding of their mark and the trying of the insensibleness thereof. Number three, putting accused witches into water. If they floated, The water was said to have refused to have received them in her bosom. Okay, so the last one is the classic. If you sink and, you know, drown, then you were not a witch, you're innocent. But if you float and, you know, live, then clearly you were a witch. So here's a minor side point. We're going to go off into biology for a minute. Brace yourself. The typical human body is almost perfectly neutral when it comes to water buoyancy. This is the typical person. People have an average relative density of 0.98, but you didn't know you were going to learn this today, compared to water. But this is affected by body fat, obviously. A person who is biologically an adult female carries on average anywhere from 6 to 11% more body fat than a person of the same size who is biologically an adult male. Why it should be the case that women are, well, fattier than men, I'm going to leave that to a biology podcast. But lovely, squidgy bioprene, fat, is buoyant, whereas meat, muscle, is not. Meat sinks, fat floats. So that means that men, and particularly muscular ones, let's say, you know, a 16th century, 17th century farm labourer, a manual worker, is going to be a lot less buoyant. And women, especially ones carrying more fat, maybe in a housewife or a mother, no shock is going to be more buoyant. So in its most simplistic terms, women are more likely to float and therefore fail this third test for witchcraft, and men are more likely to sink and therefore be exonerated. I'm pretty sure James did not know any of this, but there you go. So let's now move on to 1604. It's now a year after James has taken the throne of England and Ireland, and seven years after the publication of Demonology. King James now passes the Witchcraft Statute. This expands Elizabeth's definition of witchcraft so that it now includes the keeping of imps and pacts with the devil. The latter was, in particular, this pacts with devil, was viewed as an exceptional crime, even if nobody was harmed. Now, before this point, during Elizabeth's reign, it was possible to arrest someone simply based on accusations from neighbours, but to execute them you had to be able to successfully attribute a death or deaths to them. Witch trials in Elizabeth's era, therefore, had to find evidence of maleficium, that is, of actual evildoing, damage or real harm. But this new witchcraft statute changed things. Now, execution could be carried out if someone was simply accused of making pacts with the devil or of keeping a familiar. This was closely allied with the continental European understandings of witchcraft as diabolism or as devil worship, rather than its previous sort of almost more extreme interpretation as a magical act of vandalism or violence. Another little aside here, just for fun. The word sinister in English means evil or corrupt or pernicious. We say something sinister, we think it's bad. This comes from the Latin sinister, which means the left hand. The right hand, in Latin, is dexter, and that's where we get words like dextrous, meaning deft with your hands from. So why a negative word like sinister for the left hand and a positive word like dexter for the right hand? Well, in Christianity, to sit at God's right hand, to be dextera domini, was to occupy the place of highest honour, and this would typically be Christ. And from this theological symbolism we get the phrase right-hand man, meaning someone's closest or most important person. The Bible itself doesn't record anyone as sitting on the left hand of God, but according to texts like the Jewish Encyclopedia, which I think was published around about 1901 or 1904, this was the archangel Gabriel's place. Gabriel is God's punisher, and he goes about smiting evildoers and generally waging all kinds of biblical warfare against the armies of the Antichrist. But anyway, I've gotten off track again. Back to maleficium, or evildoing, and the king's new statute that made executing witches much easier. King James was somewhat confusing on quite where to place one's reliance when it came to testimony. So on the one hand, he urged caution in accusing innocents and in simply believing any and all testimony produced against accused witches at trial. I mean, I'm guessing that he was aware that this would be a really easy mechanism for warring neighbours and families to abuse. But he also argued... That one should not be too quick to believe the testimony from the accused either. So he actually said to threaten and torture them as ye please, and explained at length how witches and especially women could and would shed crocodile tears, that is, fake tears of remorse in the hopes of being pitied and relieved of their suffering. Of course, we have long known that under torture people obviously do far more than just cry. We will confess to anything to make the pain stop, including confessing to being a witch, you would confess to that in possibly minutes, let alone after days of it. A confession, however, as it is now, was then the gold standard of evidence. Everything fell before it, no matter how much it contradicted, if somebody confessed, that was the end. And so with the blessing of King James, many such confessions were obtained by the most inhumane treatment imaginable. So let's move forward now another eight years to 1612, and we will turn our attention to just one specific case, the Pendlewich Trials that took place in Lancaster. Before we get stuck into the trials themselves, it's nice to set the scene because it's a rather beautiful place. I am literally recording this sitting in Lancaster as we speak, and it is, to me, one of the most beautiful places in this country. It was little more than a Roman fort at the time, but Lancaster dates all the way back some 2,000 years to the 1st century AD. It is a very historic city. It's a small county town in the north of England, and it sits at the heart of what I consider to be some of the most beautiful and dramatic landscape in the country. If you go to the west, or the left as you look at a map, you have Morecambe Bay, which opens out into the cold, grey expanse of the Irish Sea. If you go to the right on the map, or to the east, you have the high, remote Pennines mountain range. Northwest, you have Deep Valleys, Barren Gritstone, and Peat Moorland, and this is known as the Boland Fells. And to the south, you have the Lake District, which was so breathtaking that it inspired Wordsworth, Shelley, Tennyson, Keats, and scores of others. Now, through the heart of Lancaster City itself, or town if you want to call it that, you have the River Loon. Now, you might assume that the river is so named Lune, French for moon, because it has a moon-shaped oxbow in it, but in reality, this name may be derived from an older Celtic word meaning pure. Or, another theory is that it might come from the Anglo-Saxon ea where Ea is river, and lon has become Lune. This would be a nod to the Celtic god Iolonus, and this was a deity worshipped in Lancashire at the time, and also, curiously, in Provence, in France. The name Lancaster too is thought to have had similar origins so lawn as we've already said and castra meaning fort or castle and so long Lancaster. After the Norman conquest in 1066 William I took control of Lancaster and in the 1200s Lancaster Castle was built. As part of it it had a jail and a courthouse which became the Lancaster Assizes. Queen Elizabeth enlarged and improved on the castle throughout her reign and in 1612 after her death and James's ascendancy Lancaster Castle, the courthouse there, would become the site of the Pendle Witch Trials. The Lancaster Assizes soon garnered a grim reputation. Rumours suggested that more people were sentenced to hang here than anywhere else, leading to people to refer to Lancaster as the Hanging Town. On a different note, for those who have invested a proportion of their lives into reading or watching Game of Thrones, you may well know that the series is based on the War of the Roses, and there's a link here too, This is the famous or infamous civil war fought for 32 long years from 1455 to 1487 and this civil war was between the House of Lancaster with its red rose and the House of York with its white rose. Each house was a royal branch of the House of Plantagenet and each was striving to claim the throne for itself. And if this also sounds like most of the Shakespeare you've ever read, no surprise the Bard was born a little over a hundred years later and took a lot of inspiration from real life events. Anyway. The death toll of this civil war was massive and indiscriminate to the extent that the male lines of both families were wiped out, along with countless others. And in the end, victory, if it can be called that, fell to a relative of the House of Lancaster who claimed the throne for himself. This new king, Henry VII, promptly married the eldest daughter of the House of York, Elizabeth, and this united the two royal houses. They, in turn, would go on to be the grandparents of Queen Elizabeth I. Back to this case, what of Pendle specifically? Well, Pendle is a borough of Lancashire. It's next to the beautiful Ribble Valley. And Pendle seems to have been retrospectively named after the dramatic Pendle Hill that dominates the skyline and can be seen clearly from Lancaster University campus. An amusing etymological aside about the name Pendle Hill, toponyms are fun, by the way. Pen, from Pendle, is a Cumbric word that means hill, or head, or top, or whatever. We'll take hill. Cumbric became extinct somewhere around the 1100s and as the general knowledge that pen meant hill faded away, speakers of Old English added hull, spelt H-Y-L-L now but it's sort of like a hull sound. So this made penhull or pennel. But again with the passage of time the sound gradually changed until it sounded more like pendle. Now for speakers of modern English who had no idea what pendle already meant, the obvious step was to add, well, So Pendle Hill translates very crudely to hill, hill, hill. This actually happens all over the country. There's loads of examples of this in geographical names around the UK. If you know of any, if you live near any, if you just know them, tweet me um, at the Enclair account and I'll retweet some of them because some of them are amazing. Anyway, these amusing toponymic linguistic artefacts aside, whilst this episode focuses on the Pendle witch trials, as already noted, this was not the only place in the country that had had a witch-hunting moral panic. In practice, a lot of aspects of the Pendle witch trials are, by the standards of the time, pretty unremarkable, but there are a few features that set these trials apart. In the end, nine witches from Pendle were hanged together, and this was an unusually large number in England at the time. This was also the first time that an English jury had been presented with sworn evidence of witchcrafts and pacts with the devil. And perhaps most importantly from a historical perspective, Thomas Potts, an associate clerk on the Northern Circuit, wrote a detailed description of the Pendle Witches' arraignments, trials and confessions in a book entitled The Wonderful Discovery of Witches in the County of Lancaster. This book is considered unique in that it is thought to be the only surviving contemporaneous account of a 17th century trial before the invention of shorthand. I'm going to say more about Potts's book later, but before we get into that, let's take a look at just one of the cases that came to trial in Pendle. Alison Device was the teenage daughter of Elizabeth Device and granddaughter of eight-year-old Elizabeth Southerns, who was also known as Old Demdike. Alison lived with her mother and grandmother at Malkin Tower, along with her siblings, James, who was a labourer, and nine-year-old Janet Device. Alison's family, and particularly her grandmother, Old Demdike, were known for their connections to magic, so Old Demdike had a reputation for being a wise woman, and she has long acted as a kind of village healer, making potions and medicines. She was particularly fond of cats and dogs, and this was an unusual occupation at a time when pets were the preserve of the wealthy. The poor could not afford to feed extra mouths for the sake of it, and Alison and her family were beggars, They were not the kind of people who could afford to waste time and energy just looking after stray animals. Unfortunately, whilst being a healer will have earned old Demdike some income, it was a dangerous occupation since it left the entire family vulnerable to accusations of witchcraft. One day, the shadow of that very axe fell. On the 18th of March, 1612, Alison comes upon John Law, a peddler, that is, someone who sells small things, near Colne in Lancashire. John Law collapses in Alison's presence and immediately he is convinced that Alison is responsible for whatever has happened to him. Abraham Law, his son, wants justice and 11 days later on the 29th of March he takes Alison to see his father accusing her of injuring him through witchcraft. Alison allegedly confesses and she begs for forgiveness and John Law states that he forgives her but it is too late. Family well-wishers have been to see him and they have heard the story and word has travelled to local justice of the peace, Roger Nowell. On the 30th of March, the day after Alison's visit to her so-called victim, Nowell takes statements from Alison Device, her brother James, her mother Elizabeth, and from John Law himself. Now, from subsequent descriptions, it would appear, at least to the modern reader, that John Law had actually suffered a stroke. In Wonderful Discovery, Potts quotes John Law's son, Abraham, as saying thus, John Law then lay in Colne, speechless, and had the left side lamed, all save his eye. Later, when John Law attends the trial, Justice Nowell describes John Law's appearance, which again is strikingly reminiscent of the after-effects of a stroke. By this devilish art of witchcraft, his head is drawn awry, his eyes and face deformed, his speech not well to be understood his thighs and legs straight lame, his arms lame, especially the left side, his hands lame and turned out of their course, and his body able to endure no travel. However, this is getting a little ahead of ourselves, so we'll go back to the 30th of March. When interviewed by Justice Nowell, alison allegedly confesses to both making a pact with the devil and to keeping a familiar. The language in these quotes is not immediately easy to follow, so I've tried to very gently simplify, but you can find the original quote in the case notes. She saith that about two years alone, her grandmother, called Elizabeth Southerns, Elias Demdike, did, sundry times in going or walking together as they went begging, persuade and advise Alison to let a devil or familiar appear to her, and that Alison would let him suck at some part of her, and she might have and do what she would. And so, not long after these persuasions, Alison being walking towards the rough lea in a close of one John Robinson's, there appeared unto her a thing like unto a black dog, speaking unto her and desiring her to give him her soul, and he would give her power to do anything she would, whereupon Alison being therewithal enticed. In this interview with Justice Nowell, Alison is also recorded as describing a rival of her grandmother, one Anne Whittle, also known as Chattox, as a witch. In her testimony, Alison claims that Chattox has been responsible for the deaths of both people and cattle. But at the same time, Alison perhaps unwittingly implicates her own grandmother, Old Demdike. She proudly describes her grandmother's magical abilities, and as part of her confession, she supposedly describes an instance in which, after quarrelling with one Richard Baldwin, Old Demdike curses his child. This same child later falls ill and dies. Three days after her interview with Justice Nowell, on the 2nd of April 1612, based on Allison's testimony, Nowell interviews Old Demdike, Chattox and three local witnesses. Around two days after that, Alison Device is imprisoned in Lancaster Castle in the jail to await trial, along with several others implicated in testimony from both herself and other witnesses. These include her grandmother, Old Demdike, her grandmother's rival Chattox, and Chattox's daughter, Anne Redfern. Briefly, it's crucial to note here that in the 1600s, the poor, and especially beggars, simply did not read or write. So all the evidence written down in these interviews will have been inaccessible to most, if not all, of those giving the statements. Four months of investigation pass by, and during this time, old Demdike dies. Finally, the trials themselves are held on the 18th and 19th of August, 1612. During these trials, despite many of the accused pleading not guilty and vehemently defending their innocence, the so-called confessions from the pre-trial investigations are read out. The trials also take evidence from Alison Device's nine-year-old sister, Janet Device. In accordance with King James's demonology, normal rules of evidence can be suspended, and the testimony of a child can be accepted. Tragically, Janet Device's testimony directly implicates many members of her family, and most damningly. Of carrying out several murders by witchcraft. Of the ten accused, only Alice Grey is found not guilty. The day after the trials, on the 20th of August, 1612, the other nine, and Device, her mother Elizabeth Device, her brother James Device, Anne Whittle, Chattox, Chattox's daughter Anne Redfern, Alice Nutter, Catherine Hewitt, Jane Bullcock, and her son John Bullcock, are taken to Gallows Hill, And hanged for witchcraft. The future of Janet DeVice also seems to have been very bleak. A woman of the same name was tried for witchcraft with a group of 19 others at Lancaster Assizes in 1634, some 22 years later, and it would seem that she was incarcerated in Lancaster Jail in the very same castle where her family were all tried and found guilty until her death. From our modern perspective, accusations of witchcraft may seem absurd and executions for it preposterously barbaric, like you would have to be out of your mind to hang somebody for witchcraft. But even if there had been some incredible, extraordinary grounds for finding Alison Device guilty of John Law's sudden illness, even if she had somehow been in some way realistically to blame, even at the time there were inconsistencies in the testimony relating to the incident. So, for those who enjoy wading through 17th century prose, I've put the original quotes in the case notes with relevant sentences highlighted. For the purposes of the podcast, however, I will summarise. So, upon being accused, Alison supposedly confesses to laming John Law by witchcraft with the help of a familiar in the shape of a black dog. She states that she did this because she wanted to buy pins from John Law, but he refused to sell her any. By contrast, John Law's son, Abraham, supposedly states that yes, Alison wanted to buy pins from John Law, but she had no money to pay for them. Regardless, his father gave her the pins anyway. And in the third account by the victim himself, John Law claimed that Alizon had begged for pins, but there is no mention made of any payment. Then, according to him, he refused to give her pins, so this directly contradicts his own son's account. And upon being refused, Alison became angry. So, three accounts, three different versions of the same event. In the end, however, Allison and others are convicted because of their own earlier statements made in the pre-trial investigation, which are read out at the trial as confessions. And as I've said, confessions are the gold standard. Everything falls before them. For those who have listened to the very first episode of Enclair, you might have already noticed that despite this trial occurring in 1612 in Lancaster, and Derek Bentley's occurring 340 years later in London, there are some unsettling overlaps. Both cases involve allegations of murder. Both involve illiterate suspects having statements written out on their behalves that they cannot read. Both have no other form of recording, like audio or independent accounts from other witnesses that we might use to cross-reference the statements. Both involve statements later being used against them in court. Both involve accused parties protesting their innocence and both involve the suspects ultimately being found guilty convicted and then hanged. In the Derek Bentley case, through analyzing the statement he allegedly gave to the police in the hours after his failed burglary, we were able to come up with some pretty convincing evidence that this was, at best an assisted dialogue sort of carefully airbrushed into a statement, or, at worst, a police-authored narrative that he simply signed. What can we do in this case? Firstly, we need to know more about the official record of events. that's Thomas Potts's wonderful discovery. This is considered to be the most detailed account of the Pendle Witch Trials, and there's a link to it in the case notes if you want to go and get your own copy. There are some very serious issues with Potts' account, and I've summarised them into sort of three major criticisms, as follows. First problem. As I've mentioned, Potts was supposedly transcribing the pre-trial investigation and the trial itself, live, in longhand. Unless, in the darkest ironic twist possible, Potts himself was in fact a witch and could write everything down at a supernaturally high speed for hours at a time, then this is almost certainly a straight-out impossibility. Your brain's ability to store what is currently being said to you and write down what has just been said is finite, and even with a lot of practice, one simply cannot write quickly enough. In short, he will have missed a lot, he will have summarised to capture the gist of a lot. Some of it could be unadulterated fiction. And in fact, to an extent, it hardly matters whether Potts was a fast writer or a slow one, because there were much larger forces at play than establishing the truth and seeking justice. There was, hovering above all of this, a very ambitious agenda. So issue number two. Potts wrote Wonderful Discovery on the orders of Judge Bromley and Judge Altham, who had presided over the Pendle Trials. Judge Bromley in particular oversaw the writing of the book, or its compilation if you like, and this will have almost certainly dictated what was included and what was quietly left out. There is also plenty of evidence that Potts' representation was carefully shaped to support and confirm demonology. There are several examples of this, so historians have long noted the link between the structure of several of the Pendle Witch's confessions and the description of witches' contracts with the devil in demonology. The confessions of and Device, James Device, Old Demdike, Chattuck's, all progress through the same three stages. Firstly, there is an account of the initial appearance of the devil as a man or a boy or a beast, typically a dog. This manifestation of the devil then requests their soul and once they agree to the trade, this familiar, this manifestation, sucks upon some part of their person, leaving a mark. Finally, the devil appears and he assists this new-made witch with the harming of others. But there's more. In other statements, those accused of witchcraft supposedly gave details of the keeping of familiars and the taking part in witches' sabbats, just as described in demonology. In case you don't know what a sabbat is, for those listeners amongst you who haven't been to one, it's a secret gathering of witches and sorcerers that involves dancing, feasting or giastic rites, so by modern standards it's pretty much just Glastonbury, really. But there's more. There is a paragraph in which Potts defends the verdict to hang, Alice Nutter for witchcraft. Alice is the only convict in the Pendle witch trials who was not a poor woman or a beggar. But the paragraph that Potts uses to defend this verdict is an almost word for word replication of a paragraph from demonology about the temptation of rich versus poor witches. In fact, the resemblance between Potts' wonderful discovery and demonology are so strong that some witchcraft historians, or witchologists, I guess, have suggested that King James himself may have instigated or even been present at the Pendle Witch Trials. In reality, there is actually no evidence that he was ever there, but Potts notes himself, perhaps unaware of the sinister turn that his words would take in future years, that the Pendle Trials represented the first successful intrusion of elite demonology into an English trial. Of course, the word intrusion now has quite different meanings. If King James wasn't there, then why bother writing this book, this wonderful discovery, as an encomium of demonology? Well, at its simplest, this is an excellent way of currying favour with the king. It would likely appeal to his royal and possibly rather sensitive vanity on the subject. I mean, he had the passion to write about it, so it's obviously important to him. And if you stroke his ego on the topic, it's probably a fast way to some rewards of some kind. But just as there is no evidence to suggest that King James attended the Lancaster Assizes in 1612, likewise there's no evidence to suggest that he was aware of or approved or even knew of the existence of Wonderful Discovery. This was published just a few months after the trials in 1613. However, public records do show that Potts soon started to receive considerable royal favour. Two years later, for instance, in 1615, he was offered the keepership of Scalm Park, where the king's own hounds were bred and trained and the king was very passionate about his hounds. And in 1618, Potts was granted the office of collecting the forfeitures on the laws concerning sewers for 21 years. Quite what that is, I'm going to leave that to you if you want to figure that out, but it's probably a very good income for quite some time. Anyway, it's either a remarkable coincidence that Potts should suddenly come in for these wonderful emoluments, or James was indeed flattered by the validation of his treatise. And I tend to think it's probably the latter. In short, Wonderful Discovery was a book shaped by highly interested parties. The judges would have wanted to appear to best advantage. They also ended up with some advantages later on as well. Potts likely saw a very lucrative opportunity if he could just produce a text that flattered the king's apparent insight on the topic. So this account is anything but an objective, disinterested record of a series of events and interviews. But how do you take the words that others have said and turn them into a narrative that fits your ultimate goal? Or more accurately, how does one do this convincingly in Jacobean England? This leads us to our third issue with this book. Like other news pamphlets of the time, Potts wrote up the account as though it contained verbatim oral testimony from each witness consecutively, and it was presented as though this was testimony given at the trial He even claimed that Alice and Device's confession at trial agreed exactly with her earlier pre-trial testimony. In reality, instead of being an accurate representation of trial testimony, this was instead a heavily mediated, highly selective reproduction of pre-trial investigations that occurred over the four months before the trials began. And those reproductions excluded critical information such as the questions asked by the interrogator, Now, there will have been no qualms about using leading questions. All of the evidentiary standards that we have now about leading questions and coercion and stuff like that, it would be years before, hundreds of years before this would even become an issue. And of course, we already know that torture and threats were not only allowable, the king actively encouraged their use. So all of this will have had an indescribable impact on the shape and content of the answers, but all of this is excluded. This isn't the only issue. Many of the witches were convicted on the basis of testimony from James Device and his nine-year-old sister, Janet Device. This testimony related to an alleged witch's sabbat at Malkin Tower. So all of the people who turned up there, who were identified by Janet Device, ended up being part of this trial. James, and possibly Janet, will almost certainly have faced these leading questions, they will have faced threats, and there is a very good chance that both of them also suffered torture. But let's consider Janet in particular. Remember, she's nine, I've said this several times now, but let's bring that back to the fore. She's also very likely illiterate, since she's a child in a family of beggars, and even if she wasn't, a nine-year-old's literacy standards are not that of an adult. She's also looking at potentially the death of every member of her family. Now, to be worth anything at all, a child's testimony must be gathered and interpreted with extreme care. We know this now. We know that children will say what they think we want them to say. So there is a very high chance that Janet may have thought that if she gave the testimony that the court seemed to like, that it seemed to receive well, the testimony that doesn't get her shouted at anymore, that stops the threats, that confirms what other people have already been saying, that this would be the right thing to do and that it would somehow help. Whatever the case, when we look at the testimony she supposedly gave, this also raises some serious questions. So for instance, she is quoted in Potts's book as saying, Upon Good Friday last, there was about twenty persons, whereof only two were men, to this examinant's remembrance, at her said grandmother's house called Malkin Tower aforesaid. The persons aforesaid had to their dinners beef, bacon, and roasted mutton. So this is supposedly the testimony of a nine-year-old. You know, to this examinant's remembrance... We would have to have actual audio recordings of the trials. This is an impossibility, obviously. We can't know for sure whether she really did speak like this if she threw in these kinds of details. We just don't know. But we do know more generally that there was a trend in pamphlets across the country to attribute weirdly solemn formal statements to accused witches who also happened to be, very often, peasants and beggars. These confessions sometimes even contained Latin, a language which was almost completely inaccessible to the poor and illiterate. So, for example, Elizabeth Sawyer from Edmonton was accused of witchcraft in 1621 and she was visited in prison by Minister Henry Goodcole. Goodcole recorded her subsequent confession, in which he described Elizabeth as an ignorant woman, this is in the sense of meaning uneducated. And in Goodcole's account, Elizabeth supposedly admits that He the devil taught me this prayer. Santibisita Nomen tuum. That's slightly messy Latin for Hallowed be thy name. Now, at this point, I'm going to make one small side comment, which is that many of the individuals who were accused of and convicted of witchcraft were people who were poor, people who were beggars, and often women, basically people who were at the bottom of the food chain in society at that time. And for those of you who have been going through this podcast thinking about issues like muttering and mumbling, it would be very clear that people who have mental health problems, people who have psychological problems, people who have social difficulties, you can imagine the catch net of people who would have been scooped up in these investigations. It was the most unfortunate, the most downtrodden, the people who had the smallest voice, the people who had the least power to protect themselves. And so in many respects, the witchcraft trials that were carried out in many places were persecutions of the poor, of women, of people with mental health problems, of psychological disabilities. So this is a difficult story to end There is no happy ending. There is no posthumous pardon here like in the Derek Bentley case. The women and a few men who were tortured, hanged, drowned, burned at the stake. Worse, these unfortunate individuals, often who had had a miserable life already to that point, they have largely drifted from memory into legend, from legend into myth. Many have passed out of all living record forever. They will have just vanished with no remembrance of them. So this is an honour to the memory of the people that we know about and a tribute to those who we can only guess at by telling this story and what came after. To finish this podcast, over time there was a gradual decline in the number of trials and the convictions of accused witches, and the last witch trials, or at least the last formally recorded witch trials, took place only a hundred years after the Pendle witch trials, and these were held in Leicester in 1717. On the 24th of June 1736, the Witchcraft Act was passed in Great Britain, And that might send a spasm of fear through you, thinking, oh God, not again. But this was quite opposite. So rather than providing statutory instruments for the persecution of witches, the law actually abolished the practice of witch hunts and trials. In fact, in a complete reversal of previous statutes, it became a criminal offence to claim that you practised witchcraft, and breaking this law was punishable by fines or up to a year in prison. According to Davies, and the reference for this is in the case notes for those who are interested, the responsibility of all men of authority was reversed. Instead of instigating the scratching or swimming of a witch, the justice of the peace now turned to censoring those who took it upon themselves to perform such actions. The fight was now not against the evil of witchcraft, but instead against the evil influence which such ignorant and superstitious delusions had on the minds of the uneducated masses. Several people were prosecuted under this act for activities such as pretending, in quote marks, to be able to conduct seances, cast spells, call spirits or read fortunes and the last person successfully convicted under this act was Helen Duncan in 1944. Her crime was claiming that she could act as a medium to the spirit world. Duncan's arrest sparked widespread controversy and there have even been several unsuccessful attempts over the last 12 years to grant her a posthumous pardon. This new Witchcraft Act was repealed only 15 years later in 1951, and instead we had the fairly amusingly entitled Fraudulent Mediums Act, and this was proposed by Walter Monslow. He argued that spiritual practices should not be criminalised, and that those who believed in such practices should have the freedom to do so in the same way that others have the freedom to practice a variety of religious faiths. There was some opposition, however, based on the argument that many of those who claimed to be able to practice witchcraft were deceiving others for financial gain. In the end, the Act prohibited people from fraudulently claiming to be a psychic or medium for financial gain, but proving the fraud part of this was exceedingly difficult. The Fraudulent Mediums Act was in turn repealed in 2008, I wonder if they saw that coming, bitum dish, and it was replaced by EU consumer protection regulations, I'm not kidding. Now, these stipulate that spiritual workers or people who want to call themselves witches or say that they can work witchcraft, they effectively enter into a contract with paying customers. I sort of wonder if you can take a love potion back after seven days if it doesn't do what it says. I don't know. Anyway, as a result, it would seem that in the end, it is the EU that now protects those of us in the European Union from the perils of witchcraft. And I swear I will not make a joke about Brexit here. This episode of On Claire was researched and fact-checked by Rebecca Jagodzinski, and it was scripted, narrated and produced by me, Dr Claire Hardacre, at the last possible second. However, this work wouldn't exist in its current form without the prior efforts of many others, and you can find acknowledgements and references for those people at the blog. Also there you can find data, links, articles, pictures, older cases and more besides. The address for the blog is wp.lancs.ac.uk forward slash And you can follow the podcast on Twitter at underscore onclair. You can follow Rebecca on Twitter at, brace yourself, R-J-J-A-G-O-D-Z-I-N-S-K-I. And you can follow me on Twitter at DrClaireH.